Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is sponsored by The Terrible Two, the hilarious new children's book series that's filled with pranks, hijinks, and cows. From New York Times best-selling authors, longtime friends, and certified pranksters, Mac Barnett and Jory John. That's The Terrible Two from Amulet Books. And by Little Passports, the award-winning subscription that inspires your child to learn about the world. Featuring a new country each month, packages arrive filled with souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. Save 40% on your first month today with promo code FIGHT40. Learn more at littlepassports.com fighting and use the promo code FIGHT40. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, February 11th, the Vaccinate Your Kids edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate and the dad of Harper, who is seven, and Lyra, who is nine. And I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry, who is six, Sam, four, and Wally, one. Hey, Allison. Hey. Can I ask you a quick question? Yes, absolutely. Wally is going to be two in a couple of weeks. So would you have would you have actually like gone over to two at this point, or would you just stick to to one until he's really two? I would say he was almost two. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that's important to kids to note that they're almost there. All right, next time. Yeah, for a while, my kids were using "I'm five and nine twelfths" or yeah. five yeah. and ten twelfths. Yeah. All right. On today's show, we're going to be joined by Seth Mnookin, who's going to talk to us about the vaccination situation that is sweeping the nation and how to talk to fellow parents who, for whatever reason, are not vaccinating their kids. And then we've got the results of our amazing snow day survey from you guys, our beloved listeners. You gave us so many great suggestions on things that you do with your kids on days when everyone is stuck inside. And we're also going to give out our three prizes to the best three snow day suggestions we got. If you are buried in New England, you will definitely want to steal some of these ideas. Plus, we've got a listener call about sibling rivalry, triumphs and fails, and recommendations. But first, hey, if you are a fan of Mom and Dad are Fighting, please tell a friend. Or better yet, tell a frenemy. I think this week I would like you to try and find a frenemy and tell them about the show. Because think about the times that you've been listening and I have clumsily insulted you or people like you on the podcast. And think how delicious it would be if some frenemy of yours, if like that neighbor mom or the coworker dad who drives you crazy, was similarly insulted by me by listening to the show. So please tell them to tune in and you can be sure it will happen eventually. And if you're a fan of Slate, please consider joining our membership program, Slate Plus. You get bonus podcast segments and behind-the-scenes looks at Slate long-form projects, like a very exciting and fun one I've been editing from our Interactives editor, Chris Kirk, that is going live next week. Plus, you get exclusive members-only podcasts. It is free to try for two weeks. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. All right, on to triumphs and fails. Allison, what do you got this week? My fail is actually my husband's fail. Is that is that allowed? <laughs> Sure, yeah. So, John... He's a former host of the show. Right, right. That's true. Uh, John, always one for transparency, decided to tell our kids about lip syncing. 
and that has basically ruined everything. <laughs> uh, most recently, the Super Bowl, when right. Harry was like screaming at the television at Katy Perry, why are you lying? You're lying. Because he thinks that <laughs> lip syncing is lying. It is um, lying. It right. is lying. Right. But like yeah. also then he's, he was, you know, that's not real, right? The sharks aren't real. This is all fake. And he can't enjoy anything. And I feel like, you know what? We can protect the, what do we call it, magic? I don't know. The magic of thinking that Katy Perry knows how to sing. Right. For a little longer and let the kids right. like enjoy these events. So that is just a, sh- a small, short fail. But it is a huge fail. Yeah, with enormous ramifications yeah. for your child's future. Yeah, and now they don't trust anyone. I mean, we're watching, whenever we watch anything, they want to know if that person is lying right. or singing. Right. Mommy, is Barack Obama really saying that? Right. Uh, I have a triumph this week. Good. I am feeling really good about the way that we have been dealing with cursing in our house. Particularly, I feel good about a pretty amazing thing that Harper walked into my office, my home office, and asked me yesterday. So they've been listening to Uptown Funk a lot, um, Mm -hmm. repeat, like over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, on a recent play date, Lyra and several of her friends were giggling about the part where Bruno Mars is like, Uptown Funk you up, Uptown Funk you up. So yesterday, Harper walks right up to me and says, Daddy, what is the F word? Is it funk or fuck? And in general, we have tried to sort of pursue this strategy on cursing of explaining to the kids that while there's nothing actually naturally wrong with curse words, that they are words that hurt other people's feelings or other people find offensive. So what's important is not using them or not using them, but thinking carefully when you choose what words you use all kinds of words about who you're talking to and what the context is and how it will be received. So like if you're at school and you curse, you will get in huge trouble because that is disrespectful to your teachers. If you're with your grandmother and you curse, you will get in trouble because then your grandmother will yell at me about her grandchildren just cursed and then I'll yell at you. But the goal is like to not, is to convey to them that like cursing in and of itself is not actually like a crime. And in fact, mommy and daddy do it and they will probably do it when they're older. And it's like not that big of a deal. It feels like sort of a reasonable way to think about cursing. And it's like a way that actually reflects the way I feel about cursing as opposed to some made up bullshit that I think of to tell them to get them to stop doing something, which is what I feel like a lot of my parenting is. I'm sure I'll regret it eventually. But anyways, my triumph is that Harper felt comfortable enough to ask me about the F word. And I managed to respond reasonably and not be like, what did you just say? Even though I sort of thought that when I when I heard that come out of her mouth. You talked about this a little bit in our legendary butt question, butt listener call. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That you guys are pretty laid back at home about swearing. And I've actually like, I am trying to be that way as well ever since you said that, because I obviously don't think it's such a big deal to swear. I think it's important for to teach them like context where right. it's okay to say these things. I don't want them to have like horrible, horrible potty mouths all the time. But yeah, it's like, that's not the battle I really want to fight. Right. And I feel like the greater lesson is to think more generally about who you are talking to and how those things will be received in all contexts, whether it's swearing or just or other things that you say. Right. So, I mean, they don't get it. They still say incredibly inappropriate things all the time, but hopefully it, it will it will land at some point. All right, let's move on to our first topic, how to convince anti-vaxxers to get those shots. There are now 121 measles cases in the United States, and in 17 states, fewer than 90% of the kids who should be getting the MMR have gotten the MMR. The question is, how do doctors, public health officials, and community members convince holdouts to give their kids the shots? 
Seth Mnookin joins us today. He's the author of the book, The Panic Virus, about the modern anti-vaccine movement. And in a recent article on the New Yorker's website, he wrote about the dearth of research into this very question, how to convince people to change their minds. Thanks so much for joining us, Seth. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Seth, your piece notes, I think, very accurately that it's, it's, it's easier to scare people than it is to dispel fears. And because of the lack of research on this question, public health officials wind up, you write, relying on their intuition to determine the best way to convince parents that they shouldn't rely on their intuition. Toward the end of the piece, you mention a few doctors who are starting to conduct some research into this question of how to convince vaccine resistors. Who are they and what kind of research are they, do- are they doing? And since you wrote the piece, have you learned about others who are working in this field? Yeah, there are actually a, a growing number of people. Some are doctors, some are scientists. There's a doctor and a researcher named Doug Opal at the University of Washington who is doing specific research into how the doctor encounter affects attitudes. So he's been filming pediatric appointments and then going back over dozens and, and hundreds of different cases and trying to figure out what messages and what types of interactions have different types of effects. One of the things that's interesting is some of the places where we see really promising research coming out is not from the public health sector. And I think that's because you need sort of a new approach, a new way to look at some of these questions. And so you have people from other fields who are actually doing that. I mean, why is it that there hasn't been enough research in this uptown? Is it just that Are there procedural hurdles to clear and getting more people to study this, or is it just that scientists need to get on the stick? Well, part of the problem is until not that long ago, essentially, you did what your doctor told you to do. Um, You know, a very paternalistic approach to medicine had kind of ruled the day for decades and decades. And this idea that patients would come in and say, well, no, I I learned this on the internet, or I think this is the best thing to do, is a relatively new one. So for a long time, there wasn't necessarily need for this specific type of research. I think also the public health community has been slow to realize that and to to respond. And specifically in in regards to vaccine, different vaccine scares, there has oftentimes been a, a bit of a lag between the very clear identification of this being an issue uh, and a kind of concerted public health response. But we are we are definitely seeing that now. So up until this outbreak, I think I was under the impression that most vaccine resistors were um, not vaccinating their kids because of because they were scared about autism. But your piece and several others in the past few weeks since the measles outbreak have noted there are so many other reasons parents aren't vaccinating their kids. Is the autism issue like now not the main thing that? Well, I I actually think underlying almost everything is the fact that a lot of these, and not a lot, you know, virtually every vaccine preventable disease that um, we get standard pediatric vaccines for have become kind of notional fears to parents. So, you know, our generation of parents didn't grow up at a time when people were in iron lungs because of polio. You know, we don't know kids who were, you know, in intensive care for a month because of measles or kids who were, who were made sterile because of mumps or, or made blind because of rubella. So while autism has been one of the main fears that people have focused on, the fact of the matter is that because the diseases that we're vaccinating against don't seem that scary, 
it really can be almost anything. And I think that's why we see parents saying, you know, they just have a vague misgiving about vaccines, or they have some sense that kids are getting too many vaccines too soon. It's a situation where the downside of not vaccinating seems essentially to be zero, even though, as we're learning now, that's obviously not the case. So any fear, no matter how irrational or small, can seem like a legitimate reason to actually not vaccinate. Right. When you have no experience with any of these diseases, it sort of becomes a choice in your mind on par with, well, should we do cloth diapers or disposable diapers? What is, what's best for my kid? So I have a question for you. If you Are you a parent, Seth? Yes, I have a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So if you determine that your kid's school had like a, a really low compliance rate, what would you do? Like, what would you do something with your kids? And would you would there be something that you would feel you could do with the other parents at that school to try and bring that compliance rate up to try and change minds? Well, my my kids are are fully vaccinated. And while there's always a small, small chance, a really minuscule chance with most pediatric vaccines that the vaccines for one reason or another don't take hold, there's really virtually no risk that my kids are going to have that aren't going to get infected with measles right now. So I actually was much more concerned. Both my children were born somewhat prematurely, and you obviously don't start getting the first doses of vaccines until two months or six months or a year, depending on what the vaccine is. And so during that period, I was very cautious about making sure that we did not spend time around families that I knew were not vaccinating. My biggest concern at the time was pertussis. Um, and in fact, for my book, I, I spoke with a number of parents whose infant children died because of pertussis and they were too young to have been vaccinated. So they were infected by some other unvaccinated child. I think that and again, I hesitate to, you know, one of the things I stress is that the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> so all I really have to go on is my personal anecdotes. But I have not found that the kind of bullying and shaming works. My own personal approach has typically been to say that certainly I understand these fears. I hated bringing my kids in for shots. And as my wife would undoubtedly tell you, I was not the person who even had to do it most of the time. Uh, I don't think it's fun for any parent. And I understand why parents are anxious about this. But there are these reliable resources that you can go to to address those fears and to answer those questions. Both the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics have really, really detailed information on their websites. The other thing I always encourage parents to do is actually to talk with their doctor. You know, instead of being defensive right off the bat, go in and say, I have some misgivings about this. I don't know if we have time to address all this today, but I would like to figure out a way that we can have these conversations so I, I can feel more comfortable making the decisions that I'm making. But as you say, the research is really necessary for the doctors to know how to respond to that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, there, this data hasn't been published, but there's some really research that I found totally fascinating um, about how compliance rates correspond with essentially doctors saying, this is what you're going to do, period, versus, you know, saying, well, let's, let me hear you out and, and why don't we talk through this. And uh, some of that research would seem to indicate that my approach to sitting down and talking it out might not be the best one if, the, if your goal is the highest possible vaccine uptake rates. But one of the things that I think 
just as a sign of how much research we need to do, we need to find out if there are some messages that are more effective for some parents, some messages that are more effective for others. If there are messages that are more effective for parents who get most of their information over social media versus messages for parents that get most of their information, you know, from face-to-face interaction with their peers. I mean, we need the type and sophistication of information that political candidates have in terms of how to reach potential voters, you know, or advertisers have in terms of public health, we just are kind of barely scratching the surface. I bet you're right that the bullying and shaming is not the way to go. But I just have this dream of like, at schools or in communities where the rate is dipping of there being a concerted effort on the part of like, everyone in the community to attach some measure of shame to the notion of not vaccinating your kids. I'm sure that that's not the right way to go, but like, that's my, that's all, my impulse is to like, to essentially peer pressure adults into doing Well, that. the problem is that there are clusters, right? And so in communities where there's really high unvaccinated rates, there might be just as many parents who don't as do. So the right. gang it's not hard to find a bunch work. of peers to back you up. Yeah, I, I think that one interesting thing that we might start to see is not necessarily that sort of ganging up, but places like pediatric offices and preschools starting to kind of make a point of their vaccination rates. You already see this happening in in pediatric practices uh, across the country that have started to refuse to accept patients who won't vaccinate. And they see that as, you know, a a medical and moral choice. But they obviously also have found that that's not going to hurt the bottom line. They found that there is a desire out there among parents for doctor's offices that they know where they don't have a risk of sitting next to a kid who, you know, is coughing and might have measles or pertussis. And I would not be surprised if you started to see that in in some daycares, you know, if you started to see them advertising as having 100% vaccination rate or, you know, over 95% vaccination rate as a way to attract parents. That's a fascinating idea. I bet that's exactly what will happen. All right. Well, thank you so much, Seth. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Seth. The article in The New Yorker is called Talking to Vaccine Resistors. It's really interesting. And Seth's book is called The Panic Virus. It's a great history of the modern anti-vaccine movement and the autism scare. Uh, Seth Manukin, thanks a lot. Yep. Thank you, guys. All right, listeners, we want to hear from you. Email us at slate.com to tell us about your experiences with people in your lives who are concerned or nervous or just flat out against vaccines. We especially want to hear if you have a success story of convincing someone in your life who had vaccine fears to get their kids vaccinated. Seth is right that the plural of anecdote is not data, but anecdotes, I think, are still helpful and useful and interesting. All right, let's move on to a word from our sponsor, The Terrible Two, a great book from Amulet Books. So let me tell the backstory of this book. They have been advertising for several weeks on our show, and we are very grateful. And I gave the book to Lyra, my older daughter, who's a big, who's a crazy reader. And, um, she read it and she loved it and she told me, Dad, you should really read it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely I should. And then um, this weekend on Saturday morning, I woke up and the book was sitting on the dresser in my bedroom with a note on top of it from Lyra that said, literally, this is a great book, Dad. You should read it. So I read it. And it is, in fact, a totally adorable book. So The Terrible Two, um, it is by Mac Barnett and Jory John. It is an illustrated book about a, a pair of pranksters in a small town who get involved in a prank war against each other. They each believe themselves to be the preeminent prankster in their town. And they get in a prank war against each other before finally teaming up 
to try to defeat their evil principal. It is super funny. It is extremely well-written. The art is very, very funny. Um, it's a really good sort of Captain Underpants mode book, although I would describe it as like maybe two steps more advanced than Captain Underpants. Like if your kid loved Captain Underpants but is trying to figure out what's next, I think this is a great choice for what's next. It is the first of a series, apparently, about these two kids and their pranking adventures. And uh, it also, I think, has some pretty great messages about trying to define yourself in a new environment and a, a, and a new place. Because one of the kids has just moved to this little town and is trying to figure out how to define himself to his peers. What kind of kid is he going to be? So anyways, once again, it's called The Terrible Two. Uh, it's by Mac Barnett and Jory John. And it is really good. Lyra and I both recommend it. And also... They're sponsoring us, which we're deeply grateful for. We are considering moving Newsbreak, Newsflash, but I definitely want want uh, to save reading that book to Harry for when we, if if and when we do. Yeah, well, it'll be a good book to get him to then commit horrible pranks that right. make your life a living hell. <laughs> In his new school. All right, so um, now let's move on to our listener call. We have a call from Jenna from Boulder, Colorado. Jenna, take it away. Hi, my name is Jana, and I'm from Boulder, Colorado. I have two boys. Um, the older one is three and a half. The younger one is just one year old. Right now, I'm experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety with their interactions. The older one is constantly on top of his brother, constantly trying to ride on him, put things on his head, kick him, just generally make him cry, and he's interfering with the day-to-day tasks of just trying to get through the day together. And um, for me, um, it's just become quite difficult with trying to get them ready for school and anything, um, really. So I have been advised to spank by some of my family, but I've never really wanted to do that. And I'm looking for other suggestions. I've tried timeouts. I've tried physically separating them. Um, I've tried bribery, and I've tried negotiating and just you know, talking about behavior, but I feel like nothing is really helping. My oldest is rather willful and very passionate child, and he's always been like that. Um, So anything that you can advise, I would be very grateful, and I love your show. Thank you. Bye. All right, go, Allison. I don't really have great advice. Uh, Mostly I have sympathy. Uh, I am also the mother of a very willful and rambunctious preschooler who also likes to make his younger brother cry. Um, And I also have not really found a solution to this problem. One thing I can say is that I don't think spanking is going to get you where you want to be, which is, I'm guessing, living in a house that feels calm and less angry. I totally don't want to put this back on you, Jenna, because, you know, part of this, I'm sure, is just your older kid's personality. Part of it is the age and he'll grow out of it as long as you are, you know, if you have as long as you have some discipline procedure and that it's consistent. But part of it might be that exactly what the first sentence in your question was, that you're totally stressed out. And I would note if he is better behaved on the days when you are, for whatever reason, less stressed. I know I've mentioned this in the past and I feel like listeners might think of a total drunk, but I now have a beer at night when I come home or half a beer at night to calm me down so that I am less stressed and then they are less stressed. And it actually, it really works. I'm not suggesting that you like drink to get through the day, but if there are some tactics for you to be less angry and tense, it might transfer onto your kids. 
So we had a similar problem. It was the interaction between Lyra and Harper when they were about this exact same age was not as physical, but it, but Lyra was clearly very jealous and did interfere a lot and did just sort of like get up in our shit when we were trying to deal with Harper and made life difficult, I think, in a, in a similar though less stressful way uh, as is happening to Jenna. One thing that we did, which we found really, really helpful was to try and redirect a lot of Lyra's behavior from interfering to quote unquote helping. Now there's like not that much that a three-year-old actually can do to help with a one-year-old, but any time that we could find a way to direct Lyra towards the notion that she was an equal partner in the raising of this tiny human being um, and that she had a role to play, whether it was just simply getting something for us or helping us cook something or helping to occupy and make funny faces for Harper while we were doing something else in the kitchen. You know, every time that we've helped her feel involved in the process, it, I think it helped her feel a little bit more ownership of of her role in the family and less like we were replacing her with this kid, which in fact actually was what had happened. We had functionally replaced her with this very demanding one-year-old. So that helped. And that may be something that you've tried and maybe that doesn't suit your older child's personality. But if you haven't tried it, I I really would recommend it. Another tip I would suggest is to really do your best to give your older child as much sort of space and his own stuff as you possibly can. Like there's a real impulse, I think, to constantly be telling older kids, you have to share with your little brother. He's littler than you. You have to share this thing. You have to share this toy. You have to share this treat. You have to share everything. And I think that that, especially to a three-year-old who is very, very focused on what is his, ends up feeling like a constant assault on his property. And the more that you can find things that belong only to him and are his special things that he doesn't have to share, I think um, that often can go a long way towards sort of easing his mind about what it is that his role in the family is and how special he remains in that family. And also some dedicated attention. I mean, it's really hard when the baby goes down for a nap to, like, not want to have that time to yourself. And I am definitely, definitely inclined to, like, put on the TV for an older kid so that I can have some me time. But uh, it's also probably you would see it would pay off to use that time to play a board game or do something fun with your with your three year old. Yeah. Really, the number one thing I would recommend, though, is is time and patience. Oh. <laughs> is beer. No, that's the number one thing. I also would recommend start drinking in the morning before you take No, it'll school. get better. I mean, yes, and my house is better. just like screaming and fighting and crying all the time. So uh, you are not alone. That's like the main thing I can say. Right. You are not but alone. it does get better and it has gotten better for us, for example. And part of the issue, Jenna, is that you are at like the exact, you're at the, the, worst. the worst possible ages. One is like big enough to really get in his brother's shit and but still really demand a lot of your attention. Three is young enough so that he still can't like modulate his response to his frustration at all. But you are really, 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 really close. And the key is going to be that very soon your older son is going to start prizing independence as much as he prizes your attention. And that matters a lot. And that is something to foster whenever you can. And drop off uh, play dates come soon. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's crucial, too. <laughs> uh, so hold the fort, Jenna. It'll be okay. Uh, as always, if you have a question that you want to ask us, give us a call. Leave us a message on our voicemail at 424-255-7833. That is 424-255-RUDE, which is what Harper was when she said the word fuck to me. Okay, so on to our second segment, Snow Days. 
last episode, I asked you, our beloved listeners, for your best snow day stories and your best snow day tips and tricks, and y'all really, really came through. Since that episode, it has snowed 74 feet in Boston, so all of our New England listeners could really stand to listen up to this section, but there are a lot of great tips you're going to hear from our listeners uh, wherever you live. Um, we heard about some amazing stuff. We heard about making oobleck in the bathtub. Oobleck is cornstarch and water mixed together to form a sort of gooey slimy substance. We heard about people who bring icicles from outside into the bath. We heard about crafts people make, like sock owls and snow day candles, which sounded awesome. We heard about magical family rituals, like the underwear Olympics. Thank you all for writing in, and thank you especially for all the adorable photos of your kids that you sent in. I really enjoyed seeing those. But here are our favorite three snow day ideas, and each of the listeners who sent in these ideas will get a combo DVD of the delightful Oscar nominee animated film, The Box Oh, there are three winners? This is Three great. winners. Okay, I didn't know that. I know. Three winners. All right. So winner number one I'm going to announce is Peter Ryder who emailed us. He was actually the first person to email us the morning the show went up with a great tip. He is the dad of a 23-month-old and a 28-month-old fake twins by adoption, he says. And his suggestion, I'm just going to read his email because it's really funny. Uh, he suggested spice tasting. We skipped only Mexican chili powder. So he sent a photo of his kids literally surrounded by little jars of spices with little tiny spoons like tasting cumin. Uh, he says it in no way translates into a willingness to eat different foods, but they were still pretty into it. My son's attention waned maybe about 10 minutes toward the end, and I got a little type A and insisted we plow through the last five spices. <laughs> Only five spices left, guys. They were pretty into the savories, like cumin. They definitely do not like the whole dried herb genre, and I patiently explained to them how celery salt is used to rim Bloody Mary glasses. I love this as a stupid indoor activity that can kill like two hours and will also make them interested forever in all the spices that you're using in your cooking and in your food for the rest of time. They'll know what those spices are and think back on that time. So I love that idea. I love right, that so idea, that's... too, although I think two hours is really overestimating how long this would well, take. Well, I mean, then you can spill them and clean them up. There's so many things you can do. <laughs> that's all right. So winner number two, Allison, you've got this one. Winner number two is Emily Lennon in Milwaukee, who wrote in saying... So a lot of people will talk about crafts and such on snow days. That's okay, but what you really need to do is get the crazies out. And I totally agree with this, Emily, both because I have wild boys with lots of pent-up crazies and also because I hate crafts. Thanks, everyone who wrote in with your craft suggestions, but I'm definitely <laughs> not doing those. Uh, okay, Emily sent three good suggestions, but our favorite <clears throat> and the award-winning one is uh, Mission Impossible Laser Maze. She says... We have a long hallway, so I took some yarn and taped it in angled lines back and forth from wall to wall down the hallway. I told the kids there was a treasure at the end, but they had to get down the hallway without tripping the laser sensors. So fun. Uh, and this does sound really fun. We were actually recently at the Legoland Discovery Center, and they had a Ninjago laser thing where you had to go under and over the light beams and would get points for how many you avoided breaking. Uh, and the kids really liked it, but I think I liked it more. <laughs> right. Uh, although I almost pulled my back out. Uh, so this sounds fun for the whole family and very easy to execute because it's just yarn and tape. Right. It's a kind of craft even you can pull off. Right. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, that, I love that idea too. Um, all right. Winner number three, Lindsay Martin. Um, I love this suggestion because it was not an activity per se, but instead it was a sort of organizational structure for snow days that happen on days that you have to work when you're stuck with the kids and you don't, you can't necessarily sit with them for two hours and, and eat spices or whatever, but it's a way to think about snow days to help you get through that. 
She writes, my snow day agenda for my kids is like this. I tell my boys ages 12 and seven that they can watch TV until 9 a.m., mainly so I can log into work online and put out any fires that need to be put out. Then at nine, I give them each an index card. On the card is a list of things they need to accomplish. Read for 30 minutes silently, make something with Legos, play outside for 30 minutes, do something creative, like draw something or write or build, clean your room for 10 minutes, make your bed, clean your junk off the kitchen island, and then some random indoor chore, wipe counters, vacuum, dust, whatever suits my fancy. After they've done everything on the card, I let them have all the screen time they want. Here's why this is awesome. It totally occupies them for the majority of the day, usually until 3 or 4 p.m. It gives me a chance to get some work done, and since they have the list, they aren't constantly asking me what they can do. The best part is the index card. They carry it around with them and cross things off as they go. I did it once because I was so sick of them doing something for five minutes and then asking if they could watch TV. This way, my expectations are totally clear and they stay busy doing what I want them to do. I love this idea because that is the number one problem I have on days like this is not the activities, but the constant, oh, well, can this activity be something else? Oh, can when can I watch TV? Oh, when can I have a treat? So like setting up this basically like a checklist, a Atul Gawande style checklist for my children to get knock off all the things they need to do before the reward, I think, is like a great way to manage that. So thank you, Lindsay Martin, and congratulations to Peter, Allison, and Lindsay um, for your Box Trolls DVDs. To all parents who watch their kids on snow days, we salute you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, All right, let's move on to another word from our sponsor, Allison. Okay, our second sponsor this week is Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Bring a travel adventure home each and every month with Little Passports. Pen pal Sam and Sophia will send your child a monthly package in the mail, each highlighting a new global destination uh, like Japan, Brazil, Egypt, and Turkey. They're a ton, and they keep adding them. Um, They're all really interesting places that I wish I could visit for real. Uh, Your kids can follow Sam and Sophia's journey on the wall-sized world map and learn about other countries through letters, uh, souvenirs, stickers that they can put in their passport, activities, uh, online activities, and analog activities and more. Uh, The first package comes in the mail in a little blue suitcase, which is awesome. I'm also a big fan of anything with maps for kids. Kids should look at maps. Uh, I fear, this is like the most like cranky old man mom thing to say, but I fear that Google Maps like leads kids to think, you know, the world is just where they're figuring out where to meet their friends. But big maps are important to understand the scope of the world. Uh, Little Passports makes the perfect gift for 5 to 10-year-olds, and mom and dad are fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with the promo code FIGHT40, F-I-G-H-T-40. So learn more at littlepassports.com slash fighting. All right, let's move on to recommendations. I'll start. I recommend taking your kids to a showing of the Oscar-nominated animated short films. They are playing in scores of theaters around the country. Um, There's probably a theater pretty close to you that is playing these animated shorts. And it is a really great film-going experience for kids of all ages. So we went this past weekend with our kids, but also with an 11-year-old girl and a 13-year-old boy and their parents. And everyone of these widely varying ages was totally into the experience. And what I really liked about it was that... uh, was it brought to mind that conversation we had with Dana Stevens last episode about where we touched on sort of trying to get your kids to stretch their film going a little bit and watch things that are different or challenging. And the great thing about shorts, about short films, uh, is that they're really short. So even if a kid doesn't like the thing that they're watching, if it's a little too advanced for them or confusing to them, it'll be gone in 10 minutes and they'll be on to the next thing. 
And the shorts in this series, it's the five nominated films this year, plus four other films that were sort of, that were given like awards of merit. Um, They range from very traditional kids shorts. Like there's that short film that was, that showed before Big Hero 6 last fall, the one about the dog who eats food that his owner drops on the floor. And it's, you know, cute and funny and Pixar-y and perfect for little kids. But there are also weirder, darker adult ones, like not obscene but about adult issues like this very beautiful british animated film about two grown brothers who are dealing with end-of-life care for their mother and it is thought-provoking and made our kids interested in this question without scaring them um and they were really eager to talk about them all afterwards and all the adults also had a really good time so anyways you can go to a website um to find out where these things are playing it is shorts.tv slash the oscar shorts and uh that's the network it's like a DirecTV network that sponsors this thing, Shorts TV, but then they will show you all the theaters that this is airing in all around you. Uh, that's a great recommendation that I actually can't top. But here's mine. I'm going to recommend two things to read. The first is actually a Slate thing, which um, relates to our conversation with Seth Mnookin, our parenting columnist who's come on before, Melinda Wenner-Moyer, who writes the great uh, parenting column called The Kids. Um, it has a, just a Q&A sort of typical questions that freaked out parents of unvaccinated infants might have, and she um, got answers for them, like, uh, should I bring my unvaccinated infant on an airplane? Do I, as a parent, need to get another MMR shot? Does breastfeeding protect my child from measles? So it's a good piece uh, if you are the uh, the parent of a child under a year old. I think it's a year when kids can start getting their MMR vaccines. Again, it's called Advice for Understandably Freaked Out Parents of Unvaccinated Infants. We'll we'll uh, we'll link to it on our show. Yeah, we'll definitely link to it. it Uh, And then I'm going to recommend a book that I have not read yet. Is that allowed? I keep asking. I keep like asking. Am am I allowed to do a fail from John? Am I allowed to? Yes, it's allowed. I run this podcast. Yes. Okay. It's allowed. It's a book called Afterbirth. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. (laughs) I I started reading it, but let me tell you why I'm recommending it, having not read it. It's a book called Afterbirth by Alyssa Albert, and it comes out next week. And it's about the after effects of a C-section on one mother in upstate New York. Uh, And I've heard from women who think that it is the best work of feminist fiction in a long time. I have heard from other women who really, really, really hate it. (laughs) So for that reason alone, I think we should all read it. It'll be is it going to be a good book to argue about in the next couple of months, I think. Yes, for sure. Okay. Afterbirth. All right, that's our show. So please email us at momanddad at slate.com to suggest topics or recommend books or tell us about guests or give us your uh, vaccination argument experiences or whatever. And if you've got a question you want us to answer on the air, please, once again, give us a call at any hour and leave a message at 424-255-7833. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You just search for Mom and Dad are Fighting in the iTunes store. And while you're there, leave a comment or a rating because that helps people find the show. And once again, please tell your frenemies about our show. We really want them to subscribe. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman. Thanks to the managing producer of Slate Podcast, Joel Meyer, and the executive producer, Andy Bowers. Thanks to Seth Manukin for joining us. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.